All right, well, good morning, church. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, however you have that, maybe you brought a print Bible, maybe you brought your iPhone or tablet or whatever. Uh, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're at this morning, so I'd encourage you to turn there. Um, we are a people of the book. We are seeking to align ourselves with God's will, which is found in God's Word. And so let me just encourage you to have a copy of God's Word with you. Um, you can download one from the App Store if you don't have one uh, that you bring around. Or if it's more convenient, uh, go ahead and download one from the App Store. I typically preach from the ESV version, the ESV version. So I'd encourage you to download that and have that with you. Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at the church of Sardis this morning, the church in Sardis. So I'm going to read that, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to work down to verse 6 this morning. So let me read that. We'll pray, and then we will get started. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather as the church, to open up your word, to learn from it, Lord. And as we do that this morning, just teach us, God. Teach us what you want us to hear and how you want us to live and act as a church, Lord. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every now and again, I will uh, come across a post as I'm scrolling through Facebook, or I like to call it Face Waste, because you waste a lot of time on there. And uh, I'm, I'm scrolling through, and, and I come across a post that, that highlights some amazing sidewalk art. And maybe you've seen these posts, and, and I don't know about you, but these posts, they always, they always amaze me. Um, I, know that, I know it's just art, but, but it looks so real. It looks like there's really this massive hole right there in the sidewalk in the middle of New York City that, that you could just walk into and just, just fall down into. Reality, or what we perceive, and what reality is, is not always the same. Sometimes there's a disconnect between how things appear and what actually is. There's no less true of the case that Jesus' letter that he writes to the church here in Sardis. Sardis has been described as a city with a, a golden past and a misplaced security. It was thought to be impenetrable. It was surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs, and on that one side where those cliffs were not there, there was this massive wall. Essentially, this, this city was a fortress. Now, while this city seemed to be impenetrable, while it thought itself to be impenetrable, while it thought itself to be invincible, it was conquered no less than five times 
throughout the years and throughout its life cycle. Two times it was conquered in the exact same way. In 549 B.C., Cyrus captured the city by deploying a climber who, who worked him, his, his self up one of those sheer cliffs in this crack. And he, as he entered into the city, he brought others in there and they overtook the city. Again, late in the 3rd century, the city was captured in the same way accretion by the name of Lagarus discovered a vulnerable point which he then climbed up along with 15 other people into the city. They opened up the city gates, and Antiochus the Great overpowered the city. The city fell because it perceived itself to be impenetrable. It perceived itself to be invincible. It didn't learn from the past and said it thought that, that as it rebuilt, that, that it would never be conquered, that it would just go on forever and ever without disruption. But that was not reality for this city. Likewise, it seemed, though, that the church at Sardis, the church that is in this very city, that knows the history of the city, is operating in the same way. It thought itself to be invincible. It thought itself, you know, that it was going to be able to carry on business as, as usual forever, and as a result, this church grew complacent, and it grew insular. And as you read through the letter to the church at Sardis, one thing that that does stick out is that, that Jesus does not mention a, a real threat from either the, the outside or the inside like he did with the other churches that we've looked at thus far, right? There, there's no mention of, of false teachers or teaching. There's, there's no mention of idolatry here. There's no mention of, of persecution that is taking place in this church as well. But while there's no real mention that is, that is mentioned, or no threat that is mentioned, many commentators, based on some archaeological evidence and finds that, that they have found, they believe that there was this really large Jewish synagogue there in, in Sardis. And as we've talked about it in previous messages, the Christians who remained underneath the umbrella of the Jewish synagogue, they would be free from having to worship at the pagan temples. And so as long as things were well, as long as they were connected to the Jews, even though they're distinct from them because they believe that Jesus was the Christ who was to come, but as long as they're connected to them, they, they, in Rome's eye, they're underneath, underneath this umbrella and they are free from having to go and worship the pagan gods at the pagan temples alongside the Romans. They're free from having to worship the emperor. And it's possible that to maintain this protection, they may have shied away from overt evangelical activity so as not to upset the Jews in the area. And certainly there would have been a period of evangelical zeal when, when this church, especially when it began uh, to, to start, when it was first planted. But, but over time, it, it seems as if maybe they had began to keep to themselves. There was this strong Christian witness at first, but, but now these things have, have begun to wane in the church. So they're not upsetting the Jews. They're not upsetting the, the powers that be there in Rome. And this is something that, that happens in many churches today. They are shying away from the bold public witness in order to you know, distance themselves from any sort of cultural backlash that might take place, especially those churches that, that find themselves in those more secular areas of our nation. I'm sure that, that you've heard the term post-Christian, as in we live in a post-Christian nation now. And one of the results of, of living in a post-Christian nation is that, that Christians have lost social capital. 
It's fallen precipitously. It's, it's no longer an expectation for people culturally to, to be a Christian. It used to be so that, that you, were just, you were expected to go to church. You were expected that, that that was something that you did on Sunday mornings. But, but no longer is that the case. This is no longer cool to be a Christian. It no longer wins you any sort of social capital. Right? It is actually a disadvantage to be a Christian these days. In many instances, the fall of Christian social capital has resulted in religious life becoming more and more privatized than ever before. Many try to distance themselves, at least in the public sphere, from their, their private life, from what they, what they believe about Jesus or what they believe about the Bible or what they believe about marriage or gender. What they do in the, in the public and what they say in public is not always a reflection of what they believe and vice versa. People aren't speaking up for Christ for fear that, that they'd lose their job, that they might be asked to leave the university that they attended. They may not be able to, to get access to the profession that they desire to be in, or they might not get into the social group that they desire to be in either. The fear of backlash is a reality, especially as Christians lose more and more social capital. And just like today, the lack of social capital, the, the insular nation of the churches is possibly, probably, a contributing factor to Jesus' rebuke of this church here in Sardis. And I say it's a possibility because Jesus does mention the idea of confession in verse 5. So look there with me. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." And you know, Jesus says something similar in his earthly ministry. In Matthew 10, 32, he says this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. You see, if we aren't willing to confess Jesus in, in the public sphere, Jesus is not willing to, to confess us to his Father. And if, we're not, and if Jesus doesn't own us in, as his before the Father, then he's not standing as our advocate before the Father, and we are going to experience the Father's wrath for all of eternity. And so as we consider what Jesus has to say here, we should be concerned when, when any church or believer begins to to privatize their faith. We should not allow the culture and, and the fear of being canceled to determine what we will and won't say in the public sphere. We must be faithful to speak up for Jesus. We must allow our Christian convictions to guide our public speech and to guide our public actions. Now, unfortunately, many churches and believers are not operating this way, right? Many churches, many believers allow cancel culture to determine what they're going to say, and how they're going to act. More and more, they're becoming institutions that, that do nothing more than just parrot what the culture says, rather than speaking transformational words into the culture. And it seems this is what is most likely taking place here in the church of Sardis. They are no longer speaking words of transformation into the culture because they're afraid of the backlash. And a church's unwillingness to speak transformationally into the culture is indicative, though, of something much more deeper, deeper something much more concerning. At one point, this, this church, they, they had to speak words of transformation into the culture. Every church has to speak words of transformation into the culture because they've got to see people's lives transformed for Christ if they actually want to be a church. 
And so at one point, this church was speaking lives of transformation into the culture. They, they, they understood that people had a need for Jesus, and, and they spoke Jesus into the culture, and people believed in Jesus. They, they turned and they repented of their sins, and they believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that, that has to happen in order for a church to become a church, because people got to come to Jesus, and, and the church body has to be formed that's just centered on Jesus. But it seems that at some point, this began to, to change. But in the past, this is how things were operating in Sardis. They are a church that has a reputation of being alive. But the church at Sardis isn't living up to this reputation, so... Look at verse 1, the second half there. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And reading that verse brings Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees to mind. In Matthew 23, 27 through 28, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, Sardis has this reputation for being alive. And this word alive here, it specifically refers to the idea that, that this church is spiritually alive. Now, how do they gain this reputation? Well, they, they gain this reputation because of their life in Christ that, that was taking place through their, their past works. You know, the surrounding churches, the surrounding Christians, they, they looked on to the church at Sardis and they saw that this was a church that believed in Jesus. They saw that this was a church that, that was reaching the community for Jesus there. And they concluded this church is spiritually alive. But notice Jesus' disheartening words to the church. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You see, Jesus tells us that despite this church's reputation, Sardis is actually dead. And, and what does this word dead mean? Well, the, the definition one Greek dictionary provides us, it says that to being so morally or spiritually deficient as to be in effect dead. It refers to a congregation that is inactive. It is remiss. It's lacking in attention to duty. It's slackened in its beliefs and its actions. And so while this church has a reputation of being alive, while this church has a reputation of, of growing in Christ, the real story is that this church is essentially dead. It hasn't closed up its doors. It's still there. It's still in the community. But it might as well be dead. The church's reputation does not match current reality. Now, how did this happen? How did a church that was known for being alive become dead? Well, I submit to you that, that the church forgot why it was planted in the first place. Look at verse 2. And Jesus says, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And so Jesus here, he, he pleads to this church to wake up 
At the end of verse 1, Jesus tells the church that, that they are dead, uh, dead. And again, they are dead in the sense that, that not that they are no longer in existence. They are, they are dead in the sense that they are no longer being effective as a church in the community. They are not growing as a body. They have become stagnant. Church isn't growing spiritually, nor are they growing numerically. The people within the church have become comfortable. The church has, has fallen asleep. There has been no consistent growth in those who are currently members, nor has there been any consistent growth in people coming to faith in Christ and then joining the church. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I love to sleep. When I was a teenager, sleeping was one of my hobbies. You know, if I woke up before lunchtime, man, something, something was wrong. Uh, my dad, he would, he would come in often just to make sure that I was still alive because I'd be sleeping so much. And now sometimes he would just say, son, you got to get up. This is ridiculous. Uh, you got to go to bed a little bit earlier so you can get up a little bit earlier. You're just wasting the whole day away. But I love to sleep. Now, as I've gotten older, uh, I don't sleep in as much as, as I did when I was a teenager, right? If I sleep in until like 7 o'clock, that's like sleeping in for me now. And so Jen and I, we had this conversation just recently. We put our kids to bed at 8 o'clock throughout the week so that they'll get up at, at 6.30 when we have to get them ready for school. Uh, but on Friday nights, we keep them up till 9 so that they won't wake us up at 6 or 6.30 and we get, we get to sleep in, right? Like 7 or 7.30 on Saturday mornings. Um, and so as I've grown older, uh, I try not to sleep in as much. I try to get up a bit earlier, get out of bed. Now, that doesn't mean it's not hard for me to get out of bed. I mean, it is difficult at times. I mean, the cover monsters, as we tell our kids, they, they, they grab us and they, they pull us back in at times. But I know that if I want to grow, if I want to learn, if I want to accomplish something that day, if I want to be effective, I've got I've to wake up, I've got to get out of bed, I've got to get going. And that's the same with the church. If the church at Sardis and any other church for that matter wants to grow, wants to be effective, they, they've got to wake up. They've got to quit being a sleepy church and just laying passive there in the community. They have to get going, they have to get, they have to get moving, they have to wake up. They've got to get themselves a strong cup of coffee and they've got to begin to, to take on the day. If they don't, they're going to die. See, Jesus is telling us here that, that sleepiness leads to death. A church that is going to be an effective church can't be a sleeping church. And what is it that makes the church sleepy? Well, Jesus tells the church at Sardis that their works are not complete in the sight of my God there in verse 2. In other words, they aren't doing everything that they need to be doing in order to grow. They, they, have, they have stopped doing what God has called them to do in God's Word. A lack of aligning themselves with God's Word has caused them to be so ineffective that they might as well be considered dead. Reputations are good. They, they tell you what others think about you, but a church can't live on a past reputation alone. It has to undergird its reputation with current and ongoing activity. But oftentimes churches fail to keep on keeping on. I mean, consider the, the life cycle of a church. When a church is planted, there's, 
a lot of, of initial excitement, right? I mean, the members are excited. They, they've, gotten, they've caught wind of a new vision. They're, they're gathering together. They're, they're getting together in this community. They're telling their friends. They're telling their family. They're, they're telling their coworkers about this new church that's about to start. And when it starts to begin to invite people, people begin to show up. There's this, there's this excitement that's taking place. People begin to, to pitch in where, where, they need, where, they, where they're needed in order to get things going. And, and if the Lord wills, because we can't make things grow on our own, but, but if the Lord wills, growth begins to happen in that church. And the church might sustain that growth for a time. But if a church is not careful, it can get comfortable. And this usually happens when that, when that new church plan has been around for several years. They've, they've seen some growth. They've, they've moved out of their temporary location, maybe into a building that they bought or, or a building that they have built. Year-to-year processes, they, they begin to hum along. They're kind of getting this thing down of what it means to do church. They're still seeing some growth, maybe not as much as when they, when they were first planted, but, but there's growth and, and it's somewhat consistent in the life of that church. And now it's here in the life cycle of this church that, 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 that they might begin to take some naps. And if that's the case, if the church begins to take naps, the, the, the slumber they are slipping into might not show up at first because they've, got a, they've built themselves up to a large base. They might even still be doing ministry, but, but oftentimes this ministry begins to, to look internal rather than external. Now, you need to have both, but, but if a church is just focusing on what is happening inside of the church, and not, not what's happening outside of the four walls of the church, well, that becomes a recipe for decreased growth. That doesn't mean that the church is not serving the community. Sometimes the churches are still continuing to serve the community, but, but they're, not, they're not having the impact that they once had. They're not, they're not this growing, vibrant new church plant that they used to be. What's happening is new believers are not coming to Christ. People aren't joining the church like they used to. But here's the concerning part. At this point in the church's life, sometimes churches aren't really worried about what, what's taking place because their past was exciting and, and they continue to reflect on, on what they used to be instead of what's taking place currently. And little by little, those naps grow longer and more frequent. And it's at this point that the church begins to see a significant decline. Sometimes churches start to take notice, but, but, but other times they, they keep going on as if nothing is wrong at all. They're continuing to live off of their parent, past reputation instead of what's taking place in the present. And if a church continues down this path, the church will eventually die. And that seems to be what's taking place in Sardis. They once were effective, but they've grown comfortable instead of speaking into into the culture in a culturally transformative way they have they've grown insular everything is about the people in the church there's there's little concern for what is happening outside of the church in many instances what is happening inside the church begins to slip too teaching begins to slip the church in sardis is in this position they are acting like the city that they are in they they believe that they are always going to be. Nothing is going to take them down, but in reality, death is coming soon. 
And you know, Sardis isn't the only church that believes that, will, that they will always be. It's not the only church that is living off of a past reputation. Sadly, churches all over the world do the same thing that Sardis is doing. They look back to yesteryear instead of to the present. They consistently celebrate what, what once was instead of seeking to make new memories. They, they, they celebrate what, what, what happened in the past instead of being honest about what is today. They get excited about past memories instead of seeking to make new memories. And that's the state of many churches today. And that's why hundreds and thousands, literally thousands of churches are closing every single year. Because they get in this life cycle and they don't do anything about it. You see, unless a church is constantly assuming that it is falling asleep and it's constantly rousing itself from its slumber it will eventually die. And that's the position of the church in Sardis. That's why this church has, has become ineffective. That, that is why they're not making waves in their community for Christ. That's why many churches are today. And so how, though? How can a church rouse itself from sleep so that it continues to be effective for Christ? How can a church do that? Well, first, a church can't allow itself to get comfortable. One author I've been reading lately says this, unless the church is constantly assuming it's falling asleep, assuming it's losing that original sense of what we're here for, unless the church is continually going back to corporate repentance, a church will fall asleep. You see, it's when we get comfortable, we're in danger of, of falling asleep and becoming ineffective. And so we can never let ourselves get comfortable. We always have to be assessing our current ministries to determine if they're being effective or not. And that not only goes for, for internal ministries, but that goes for external ministries as well. I believe that, that one question we have to ask ourselves periodically throughout the year is that if, I, if we had to close the doors of the church tomorrow, would the community notice? If we had to close the doors of the church tomorrow, would the community notice? Honestly, Asking and answering that question periodically throughout the year, not just every several years, but periodically through the years, forces you to examine yourselves in the present and to plan for the future. A church's current reality has to match their past reputation of being alive if they're going to continue to be effective. We can't allow ourselves to get comfortable. And so what else? What else must we do? Well, we must remember and continually preach the gospel to one another. Look at verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You see, before Jesus tells this church that he's going to come and steal their lampstand away from them, he tells them what they need to do. And what is that? Well, he says, you've you got to remember You've got to remember what you received. You've got to remember what you heard. You've got to keep it, and you have to repent. What's Jesus talking about? Well, well, Jesus is talking about the gospel. He's saying, you've got to remember the gospel. What is it that got you going in the first place? The gospel got you going in the first place. Jesus got you going in the first place. Belief in him got you going in the first place. You've got to remember that, and you've got to keep that. You've got to keep that memory in front of you. You've got to keep the gospel in front of you. 
They need to remember their brokenness. They need to remember Jesus' saving grace. Then and only then are they going to be driven to repentance and once again experience the joys of this saving grace. Joy that that propels people to seek Jesus' glory. Here's how one author puts it. At the intersection of profound brokenness and proclaimed gospel, one sees their own depravity and helplessness and stark clarity and therefore truly sees God's grace for all that makes it amazing. You see, it's the gospel that wakes us up from our slumber. It's the gospel that revives us. It's the gospel that drives joy in us. It's the gospel that that causes us to yearn for a relationship with the Lord. It is the gospel that strips away self-reliance and self-satisfaction and self-service. When the gospel grips us, when the gospel truly grips us, then we will be captivated by Jesus. And when we're captivated by Jesus, we we will live for Jesus despite the cultural backlash that might come, despite the social costs. And we will want others to know Jesus. We will want others to grow in Jesus. You see, if we are going to be a church that is alive for Christ, we must be a church that constantly preaches the gospel to itself so that we constantly sit in awe of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. It doesn't have anything to do with church growth methods and all of that stuff. It's got everything to do with are you in awe of Jesus? Are you in all of what He has done for you? Are you captivated by Jesus? A church that is living in all of Jesus is a church that is worshiping Jesus. And worship is not just something that we do here for an hour or two on Sunday mornings, right? It's not just singing a few songs. It's not just hearing, you know, a prayer that is, that is being offered and, and Scripture being read. It's not just hearing a message. Those things are definitely worship. And I don't want to diminish that. Those are definitely worship. But worship involves our entire life. A worship occurs when we give something so much weight in our life that we allow it to propel us into action. And that action, it might be singing. It might be praying. It might be teaching or attending a Sunday service. It might be hearing the, the, the preached word. But that action should also include what we do every single day and every single hour of every single day, not just when we're gathered here on Sundays. You see, worship does not start when we walk through the doors of this church, and it doesn't stop when we walk out of them. We should worship Jesus every single day, all day long, with all of our lives. If we're not worshiping Jesus, then we are worshiping something. Last week we talked about idolatry. We are worshiping something, and we are good at worshiping something. And it's just, who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping Jesus or are we worshiping something else? Are we allowing something else to direct our lives or are we allowing Jesus to direct our lives? What or who you are worshiping every other hour you are not here on Sunday morning? That's a question you've got to ask yourself. What or who am I worshiping every other hour that I'm not here? If we're captivated by Jesus, if we are a church that is aligned by, with God's will found in God's word, if we are constantly remembering and, and preaching the gospel to ourselves and one another, we will be a church, we will be a people who worships Jesus each and every single day. If our ministry is going to be effective, then we must worship Jesus. We must do as Paul calls us to do in Romans 12, 1 and 2, present our bodies 
as a living sacrifice. We must not be conformed to this world. Rather, we must live as people who are transformed by the gospel. And that's the only way that a church is going to grow. Right? You, can't, you can't hire ministers to grow the church. The church itself, the people who make up the body of the church, must be in awe of Jesus, allowing Him to transform their lives. Only then will the church consistently speak words of transformation into the culture and see growth as they live aligned with God's will. But again, the only way that we're going to do that is by remembering and continuing to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. And so we see here, we learn here, that a church that is aligned with God's will is one that remains alive through constant assessment and the preaching of the gospel to one another and the community. You know, I've been reading a book, Life on Mission, by Willis and Co., and, and they tell this story of the city of Montreal. Travel five hours northeast up Highway 89 from Boston, Massachusetts, and you'll find yourself in Montreal, a city that has 0.7% evangelical. 0.7, not, not, even, not even 1%, 0.7% evangelical. And in the book, they, they, they talk about this article, an article, an overview of Montreal by Adam Miller, and he's a writer of this major missions agency, and he begins to describe Montreal as a city with streets named after saints, with church buildings around almost every corner, but where things are not what they seem. Montreal native and church planner Francois Versheldon says of this city, even if it seems like Jesus' presence is here, it's not. There is a religious presence here, but his work is not known. His sacrifice is not known. Nobody can explain why Jesus died on the cross. Church buildings that, that once held thousands of people for worship every single Sunday now serve as museums that people visit strictly for the architecture or to read placards about church history. More and more church buildings are, are coming on the market you know, as real estate, their, their lofts, or they're becoming trendy concert venues. I mean, do you see this, this picture that he's painting for us here? Churches that were, were once alive, churches that were beaming with life, churches that were reaching their community, speaking words of transformation, seeing lives changed for Christ, they are now museums, they are lofts, and they are trendy concert venues. We can't live on a reputation of yesteryear. We have to live in the present. We have to look forward to the future if we want to remain alive, if we want to continue to shine as lights for Christ in the community in which we are planted. Church, turn to Jesus. This is how we can respond today. Remember, Jesus says, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Turn and worship Jesus, continue to preach the gospel to yourself. Continue to preach the gospel to one another so that you will stand in awe of Jesus each and every single day. It is a church that is standing in awe of Jesus. It is a church that is captivated by Jesus, that is speaking words of transformation into the culture and is seeing growth. And if you haven't turned to Jesus, 
If you, if you come here today just checking out Christianity, you come here today just to, to figure out what church is all about. Maybe somebody told you about Jesus or somebody told you about this church and you stumbled in here today or you're watching online. Turn to Jesus as well. Profess Him as your Lord and, and as your Savior so that your name as Jesus ends here will not be blotted out of, out of the name of the, of the book of life. If you turn to Jesus, your name is, is written in that book and your name will continue in that book for all of eternity. If you confess Jesus before men, then Jesus will confess you before His Father and before the angels. If you haven't turned to Jesus, if you're not worshiping Jesus, if you wouldn't call Jesus your Lord and, and your Savior, then today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe in Jesus. Today is the day to believe that Jesus has died for you. That He sacrificed Himself for you so that you might experience eternal life. So that your name might be written in the book of life and never blotted out. And so turn to Jesus today and you'll gain entrance into His heavenly kingdom. Turn and worship Jesus today. That is the call of this text to everyone, both Believer and non-believer alike, to turn and to worship Jesus today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you provide it to us. That you don't just leave us blind. That you don't just leave us groping in the dark for how we should live and how we should do church and, and how things should go in our lives, Lord. But, but you give us your word and you, and you speak into our life. You speak into our church. God, today, as you have spoken, Lord, I ask that we might take this word and we might apply it to our lives personally and to the church's life corporately. And Lord, if there's no one here, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, Lord, we ask that, that you might work in their life, that you might take these words and transform them, Lord, that they would not go out void, that, that, that you would press them into their hearts so that they would see their need for Jesus. And they would turn and they would repent so that their names might be written in the book of life. So that they might enter into your heavenly kingdom one day, Lord. So that they might begin to make waves in the community for Christ and begin to transform the culture in which we live. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.